Hi everyone, I'm Jessica Minhas and welcome to Alga First. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting you on your journey of mental health, hope, healing, and freedom. And we really like to talk about the things that are really hard to talk about. So on this episode, Liz Eddy, founder of Lantern, shares her personal story of losing her father and why planning ahead is so important. Let's be real. Talking about death can be like really uncomfortable, but end of life planning allows our loved ones to focus on grieving rather than our stuff. So today Liz walks us through why, how, and what to do so that we can support our loved ones just as much as they have supported us. Liz is literally the queen at talking about stuff that's hard to talk about, so I can't wait for you to hear all about it. Let's get started. Awesome. Well, I'm here today with Liz Eddy, and we've known each other for actually like six years or so. Yeah, it's been a while. I was trying to figure that out earlier. When I met you, I was so intimidated by you. Like typically when I met up with you for the first like three years, I like started sweating profusely. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Just my social anxiety. I remember you um, invited me to your birthday party and I like really had to prep myself outside to not be weird. I just over and over in my head. And then I before kept we knew myself, it, we're making candles together in my apartment. <laughs> Even then I was like, be cool, Jess. Don't be weird. Don't be weird. But you weren't weird. You did it. I did it. I survived. <laughs> I survived. I want to give you an intro, but I feel like I won't be able to do it justice. So we actually met through Crisis Text Line, but tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, how, how do we describe Liz Eddy? Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I think about this like intro thing a lot and I'm I'm always like, what age do you start at? Is it I don't like know. seven, fourteen, like twenty-five? Sure. I don't know. So I'm gonna start my story at the age of nine. Perfect. <laughs> um, Perfect. And um and honestly, you know, I it really did all begin with my dad passing away from cancer. It was my first exposure at a really early age to the brevity of life and how um, how quickly things can change um, and the impacts that grief and loss have on families. My mom became a single mother in her mid-30s, and um, and I was an only child, so our family was a very different dynamic suddenly. Wow. So just um, you guys. Yep, just the two of us, the Eddie girls, as we always said, like the Gilmore girls. Nice. <laughs> and, you know, I think it, it did set me on a trajectory, though, where I was always hyper aware of how short life is and really, for better or worse, wanting to do as much as humanly possible. And when I went to high school, I found friends who were equally as unathletic as me. (laughs) Really? Because you're a runner now. You know what? Life changes, and I will get to that. It is wild how much it's changed, but I was very unathletic. I broke my wrist in preseason basketball uh, my freshman year (laughs) and then never played sports again. That sounds like me. I got kicked out of volleyball practice. I also, it was too uncoordinated to be a cheerleader, which was really upsetting for me. Oh man, we have we have a lot to talk about. I'm here. We'll still get, we'll very uncoordinated. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, same. I always run into like the corner of counters and like hit my shoulder on doorways. And same. Just... I have unexplainable bruises, yeah. cuts. <laughs> Yesterday, I was looking at myself in the mirror. I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> oh, so relatable. <laughs> We have so much in common. It's crazy. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, when I was in, in high school, I found these unathletic friends, and we we actually went um, into a school program that was really focused on civics and government, and we had to do a community service project, and I suggested doing something on dating abuse and domestic violence, something people where, don't really where did, talk about. Why, as a 
high school or were you thinking to yourself, this is a conversation that needs to happen? It was honestly started uh, within my family, um, not my immediate family, but extended family. And and it was something that I realized, you know, touches so many people's lives, either, you know, in dating or in marriage. And, um, and nobody really talks about it. And I brought it up to my classmates, a room about 200 kids, and uh, everyone was kind of like, oh, like, I don't know. Nobody really wants to talk about that. And my two best friends sitting next to me were like, no, we want to talk about it. That's, so we're gonna those do are it good ourselves. friends. Yeah. Those are good friends. <laughs> so we started an organization that was all about teaching young people about dating and wait, domestic how, violence. How old are you at this point? 15. You're 15. You started an organization, and your dad had passed just six years earlier. Yeah, and um, and yeah, and so we started this initially just one. We were doing a fashion show fundraiser. We're like, how can we make it fun and still like sort of squeeze in some information uh, to our peers? And then all of a sudden, it just started growing rapidly. It became the largest organization within our school, and then suddenly it was popping up in universities and high schools all over the U.S. Um, what was the name of it? It was called, it's still running. It's called Sisters on the Runway, uh, very appropriately named by 15 year olds. <laughs> I like it. And it was all about like women were the stars, the guys were handing out hors d'oeuvres. It was like very servants. Much, yeah. <laughs> and, and teaching young people about dating abuse and domestic violence and raising funds for a local shelter. But it suddenly became this sort of educational source um, where young people were paying attention to the signs of dating. How abuse is and that for violence. you? As a 15-year-old, and then how does that work? You have an organization about domestic violence. What does dating look like in high school? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times throughout my life people have been like, I feel like you're really hard to date. <laughs> Because I've been in like suicide prevention, dating abuse, and domestic violence, and now end of life. And it's like, huh, those are very strange like dinner table conversations. A special person. Yeah. So I can just say it's also taken special people that want to date me. That's true. That's true. I remember when when, um, I went on my first date with my husband, Chris. It was right after I had gotten on stage for the very first time to talk about my personal story, mm-hmm. which is about, you know, child abuse, sexual abuse, you know, all the stuff that's really hard to talk about. And afterwards, he asked me out on a date. And in, in my head, I was like, well, you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, put all the cards on the table. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah, I've never really been one to hide my baggage. <laughs> it's sort of just it's sort of like, it's there it there. is. There yeah. it is. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, so I mean, we, we built this organization. They're still two of the closest people in my life are the two that ran that organization with me. It's now been running half our lives. We aren't involved in it anymore, but it continues to go in high schools and universities. So it's like a club around the country. Yeah, and, and it's schools. different in every high school and university, which I find to be really interesting. Like some places it's really heavily focused on the fundraising, and some places it's really heavily focused on uh, women's empowerment and um, and self-defense. It's like it, it Ooh, kind of – self-defense too? Yeah, yeah. And so it, it's taken on many different forms, which we always thought – you know, for us it was always student-led. When we left college, we said we're not touching it anymore. This is a student-led thing. And I think that's where its power comes from, is from that, like, really driven, passionate young person. <laughs> you Do know, you think – what, what, changed, what changed for you when you're – you know, because you're doing so many activism stuff, you know, that's just been, like, a theme and just a core thread to who you are as a person, which I respect and admire so much and am always in awe of you. Do you – what changed for you as a kid when, you're, when your dad passed? 
Yeah. Because suddenly you're like not a kid anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're, oh my gosh, like a laundry list. And you know what's funny about that question is I always thought I was like very unique in how I handled my dad's death. And how, did, then, how did you handle it? <laughs> I was just, you know, I, I think at that age, you're very, um, you're very quick to try to move on. Um, you want things to be as normal as possible. Yeah, you, you want to normalize it. Yeah, I wanted to go on sleepovers. And I think my mom was kind of like, what is wrong with her? Like, Did why you, does she want to go sleep over at her friend's house? Right I know now? that when my, so I grew up with just my grandfather. Um, and when my grandmother passed away, I went to school the next day. It was super weird. I felt like I shouldn't be at school, but then it was weird that everyone, I I actually, I was about nine as well when that happened and everybody around me was like, are you okay? But I didn't get the concept of death yet. Like you don't really understand the magnitude of gone at that age. And, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I, later in life, I've read so much about this topic now and I realized like I, I wasn't unique at all. It's like a very common reaction at that age. Um, you just, you don't understand the magnitude. I think you understand how your day to day changes, but you know, in term, my dad had been sick for a while. How, yeah. How um, long was he sick with? And it was cancer, right? Yeah. He had cancer. Um, and he was sick on and off for most of my life, starting around when I was in kindergarten. That must've been um, so hard on your mom because yeah. at nine, so she was in her mid thirties. So this is like in her late twenties that suddenly her husband is sick. Yeah. It's, it's really wild. Like, especially now I'm, I'm turning 30 this coming year and, um, thinking about like what her life was like and how I'm going towards that age where she had a terminally ill spouse and a young child and what that really meant for her. I mean, she lost a lot of her, um, her youth, you know, because she was so, such a good caretaker to me and to my dad and so focused on both of us and so focused on trying to make my life as normal as possible. And my dad was too. Like, I think one of the things, um, that I hold so close is that he, until the day he died, tried so hard to keep my life as normal as possible. Like he was on chemo and so sick and he pitched a tent in our backyard so we could go camping together. <laughs> like, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it, I got very lucky to have two incredible parents and, and now a stepfather who's also equally as supportive and has taken me on as his second daughter. So I feel very lucky. Actually, something that came to mind is you know, a conversation around when we lose when we lose people in our lives, particularly when we lose somebody who's a caretaker, what does it mean to like kind of find a father figure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, I think it's rare that my mom. I don't know. She's got some magic touch and managed to find like two very wonderful, strong. Uh, supportive men that have been in my life. But I, you know, it's not the expectation that someone's going to step in on a relationship and become a father figure to a kid that's not blood related to them. But he stepped in and not only did he take on the role as a caretaker, but he never stopped bringing my dad up. Like he was always very, like, I think that's a level of confidence I don't think I've ever seen in anyone else. He, he brings him up still, you know, anytime there's any major accomplishment in my life, he's always, your dad would be so proud of you. He's here with you. Yeah. And that's not something he needs to do or anyone would expect him to, but he, I think he knows the important role he's played in my life and he knows that keeping my dad's memory alive is really important as well you are really active with a nonprofit called experience camps yes i am that is so special can you explain it yeah. in in kind of the goals and why you were so attracted to this amazing work yeah i um you know as i mentioned before um when my dad passed away i was not 
uh, particularly interested in doing any kind of therapy or anything really related to grief. That's I just, hard. yeah, I just wanted to go about my normal fourth grade life, whatever that oh was. Oh my gosh, at the time. I'm trying to. What, what was your favorite <laughs> outfit as a fourth grader? I uh, I had a limited to uh, like sheer top that I loved. It had all these crazy colors and patterns on it, and I thought I was the coolest thing. When that I is went. cool because limited to back in the day was expensive so yeah. that was like an oh yeah investment. it was fancy it was fancy and I remember I used to always go into limited two and walk around and every once in a while my mom would be like okay all right you can get something <laughs> and those clothes are ridiculous <laughs> is limited two still around I have no idea I wish the candy section was the best part can- it was and it always <laughs> kind of smelled really nice in there <laughs> so you're wearing this colored uh, see-through limited two or see-through um kind of sheer shirt and people are asking you late 90s you can imagine i mean it's coming back (laughs) i mean look i'm i'm literally wearing like these mom jeans right now and a jack black t-shirt i love it and combat boots so i'm all about the 90s (laughs) i recently found my track jacket from high school and it is like a total total hit i'm so glad i kept it oh my god i like i so wish we were on like live tv right now so people could see your outfit it's really it's good well we are streaming so you can watch this on youtube perfect (laughs) so you're you're in this outfit like i can just imagine like this bright colored shirt and you as like this adorable kid and people are coming up to you being asking you about counseling and do you want to talk about this and you said as a fourth grader like no way Yeah, I just wanted as normal as possible. Didn't really comprehend that, you know, at that age that like therapy is normal. But, you know, I was just like, no, I I just want to go to school and sleepovers and art class and, you know, all the things I was doing before. And it wasn't until my adult life, I actually my freshman year of college, I, I went to Syracuse and it was as if the death had just happened. So I my mom dropped me off at school and something triggered in my mind that was like the sense of loss. What do you think it was? And I think just being on my own and and seeing my mom leave and sort of recognizing that I was detached now from everything familiar, that it kind of triggered this sense of loss again. And again, thought I was super unique and special and then found out that's super normal. (laughs) (laughs) Loss is interesting because – and getting triggered is interesting because it does feel like it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did not expect it at all. And I was very quickly hit with the realization that I had some work to do on my on myself um, and on dealing with grief that I, I didn't know I needed. I think because I had always just been so secure with my family and my friends and my day-to-day and, you know, running this organization. I felt very fulfilled in high school and um, and then went to college and was like, oh, like I'm on my own now and all of these things are surfacing and I don't know what to do. And was pretty surprised that like my, my university's uh, – mental health support was not great, um, was very much quick to say, we don't, we, we don't want to keep you at the school. We think you need to see, seek therapy. What? Um, it was, it was very shocking. And at the time I was kind of just like, well, I don't know what's happening, so they must know better. Um, and so I took a leave of absence for a semester, um, to really kind of figure out what was going on. But it was, it was pretty wild because I, I wasn't suicidal. I mean, I could have been, but I wasn't. 
And they were just, I think they just didn't want the liability. Honestly, that's kind of how it came off. And, and in hindsight now, looking back on it, I'm like, wow, that was a really terrible way that they handled that situation. But what it did do is uh, introduce me to, um, to therapy and to different uh, ways of, of healing from the grief I hadn't handled as a Why kid. Why do you think at that moment you were okay and open to therapy I mean, I recognized that like something was off. I mean, a lot of my behaviors changed. I was, I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't eating well. You know, I, I love to eat. So like anytime I have no appetite, like I know I got to like do a check with myself on what's going on. And, and I wasn't, I felt really uh, like mentally unprepared to be on my own. And that's scary when you feel like you don't have control over your emotions or, or you don't know why you're feeling the way you're feeling. Totally. And so, yeah, that was kind of my first entry point into, um, into therapy, but I, I didn't feel as fulfilled from it as I thought I would. I found a lot of times like in therapy, like I, I sort of knew like, okay, this is why I feel this. This is why I do this. And I wasn't really looking to be like psychoanalyzed. I was just looking to talk to somebody and to find community and support. And so Experience camps, to circle back to that question. Yeah, experience camps. <laughs> was where I found that place. Um, and what, what is experience camp? So it's it's a free summer camp for kids who have had a significant loss. It's one week. It's in five locations across the U.S. It's, and what are the ages? It's ages 9 to 16. That is so yeah. interesting that it's 9. That's when, yeah. you're, when yeah. your dad passed. Oh, yeah. And I'm usually with the youngest kids. So I see a little version of me every summer. <laughs> and wow. Um, and I went to that camp kind of feeling similarly to how I had felt about therapy, which was like, oh, I don't know if it'll help, but like, I'll give it a go. Like, we'll see. And, you know, and on the flip side, like, what an amazing organization and thing. Like, I, I want to see what it's like in action. Maybe I can be helpful. I had no idea the impact it was going to have on my life. It's, you know, it, it's so helpful to the kids. It's so helpful to the counselors. It's one of the most healing environments I've ever been in. And it's it's basically one week of like intensive community around shared loss. It's not, people always think they're like, oh, that's so depressing and so sad. Like, why do you want to spend a week talking about death and grief? And I'm like, it's not though. Like there's something about being in a community of people that have been through similar experiences. And of course, every death and loss is different, but there is this shared sense that, you know, comes across whether you're nine or 99 <laughs> that, that people understand and inherently bonds you in a way that I don't think you bond in any other kind of environment. Um, and so I completely fell in love with it. It's been the greatest therapy. I think helping people in general is great therapy. <laughs> yeah. Um, finding that purpose. We talked about yeah. this a little earlier, but what does it mean to make meaning of loss? Yeah, exactly. I, I think it gives everybody a sense of purpose, a sense of community, the isolation that I think you often feel, especially as a kid, it starts to dissipate as you get older, but as a kid where you feel like you're the only one who's had a loss. I'm the only kid at school who's lost a sister or a brother or a mom or a dad or whoever right. it might be. And then you go to camp and you're like, oh, everyone else has also had this. That happen. is so valuable. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. thing that I struggled with, and I'm curious your thoughts on it, were the days that, you know, because like I said, again, because my grand, it was my grandfather, he was also really sick. So he couldn't attend those parent days, like the daughter-dad days or the father-daughter mm -hmm. days, Father's Day, Mother's Day, Christmas, Thanksgiving, all those holidays were so hard because he was incapacitated. He couldn't participate. So I always mm -hmm. felt really lonely. And I'm curious what your kind of experience was around that and how 
how you deal with it now. Because even when Father's Day comes up for me, I'm a little like, okay, I have to like walk my through myself through it. Or when friends are like, oh, my mom's coming. I'm like, okay, like trying to keep the perspective. What does that look like for you? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's like, it's one of the biggest struggle points for anyone that's that's lost anybody close to them. There are so many you know, wonderful things for families to celebrate their relationships and their love and their support for each other. And, and there's no doubt that 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 should exist. But it for the people that have lost someone, it it creates this sort of othering feeling, especially, you know, at school, when you're, you have all the kids making Father's Day cards, and it's like, Oh, well, you can make one for your mom. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And there's sort of these awkward dynamics. But I, you know, and also I, I'll get to this a little bit more later, but I worked, you know, in mental health for a long time and with crisis text line and holidays were an area we talked a lot about as well, because there is so much, you know, social isolation that happens during these kind of holidays. And I think I, I wonder sometimes if I'm in a little bit of a bubble because of the space I'm in, but I have noticed that people tend to have started to go out of their way a little more to recognize, you know, on Mother's Day, recognizing mothers who have lost children and children who have I lost mothers. I think that is and, a conversation that's changing. <laughs> Yeah, and just recognizing that not everybody has that, you know, white white picket fence family and that it's an opportunity to reach out and to support those friends that don't. And and one of the things that I've done, I think there's a lot of small things you can do on the day-to-day to make your grieving friends feel supported, but every Mother's Day, every Father's Day, I always send a text to all the people that um, that I, I need to have like a master list, but it's usually the people that I think of on the top of my head. Um, just saying like, hey, thinking about you. Some people do that for me. When I hear someone mention the date of either a birthday or a death date um, of someone they loved, I'll try to put it in my calendar as like an annual reminder, just like where I can. I mean, it's obviously an imperfect system. That's but... <laughs> such a great way to honor people. I love that. Yeah, I, I think it makes a huge difference. I mean, I know like on the date that my dad passed away, there's a few friends, including my high school boyfriend, who were both with other people and very happy, and he still texts me every year on that, that date. Is, and I'm like, you are a beautiful. wonderful human. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to, to feel like seen and remembered. One thing I love about your work, as you said, you worked in, you did as a high schooler domestic violence, and then you came to New York um, after university and worked in mental health, and now you're doing this this um, th- I, I don't even this company around <laughs> death and dying and sort of that life process. You can articulate it more, but you are just really in the business of taboo subjects. Yeah, <laughs> I I've, I spent a lot of time over the past few years trying to figure out like what is the thread that runs through all of these things, and it really is that it's the stuff no one wants to talk about. It's the stuff that impacts. Most everyone, nearly everyone, or everyone in my current case of my current business. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people shy away from these topics. And one of the, maybe if you want to call it gifts that came from a lot of early childhood trauma is that I'm very comfortable talking about it and I'm not afraid to face it head on. And I can talk about it and still be friendly and have a smile on my face. And um, I think it surprises people with how comfortable I am. Um, but it also gives me the power to be able to really dive into these topics and, and try to make it better and easier for others that maybe are not as comfortable. It sounds like you have been able to cultivate a, like a language around these really hard topics. 
Yeah. And it, I mean, so much of it stems from, from empathy. I think, you know, on all aspects, it's like, I can't say that I've experienced every type of mental health issue. I personally have not experienced domestic violence or dating abuse, but I think when you develop empathy, you can, you can see and feel what it might be like and, and try to educate yourself as much as possible. Um, and then once you get yourself to that place, be able to educate others that maybe don't know they should be aware of something or don't know that um, there's things that can help them. And that's, that's kind of always been my driving force is how can you make, how can you take taboo topics and make them more accessible, more affordable and at larger scale? Yes, that is so true. Cause that process is so expensive. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to talk a little bit about the work you're doing now, I know that when, when my grandfather passed, I also was in charge of all of that. And I had just turned 18 and that process was so overwhelming, but shockingly very, very, very expensive. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, so give a little bit of background on, on where the idea for, for Lantern came from. My, my grandmother passed away last year actually almost two Januarys ago, January 2018. And I was working at Crisis Text Line at the time. And and my mom was living in Colorado and just, you know, doing tons to help with, with supporting my grandmother. This is my dad's mom. And my dad was an only child. So it was really just my mom and I that were really involved in, in the day-to-day. Um, and my mom happened to be out in Colorado the day that my, my grandmother passed away. Um, and so I got a phone call on... You're at work. I w- it was a Saturday morning, so I was actually at home. And I, I got a phone call uh, from her retirement facility saying that I needed to come up there immediately. And so I uh, got on the train, walked in her front door, and there were two police officers, a nurse and her body. And they looked at me and they said, what do you want to do? What? Did, like, what how did you feel in that moment? <laughs> it was startling uh confusing um I was really just surprised also at you know I think sometimes in these environments they're so they're so used to death that they forget that there's a connection and a relationship that they're they're handling which is where I think the empathy kind of comes in oh yeah so like not just empathy for yourself but empathy for the people who may not be that comfortable with it exactly um and so yeah when I I mean it was just it was stunning to me how quick they were to say okay what do you want to do like let's get moving on this and I had no idea and you know even though my grandmother was 96 and there was you know plans in place there's nothing really to prepare you for that like okay ready set go like that start moment. sprinting yeah and we didn't really do a lot of preparation before because we didn't we didn't know we were supposed to and so what I, kind of preparation was missing because you just you mentioned that there were plans in place but what were the gaps that sort of got lost in the pre-planning yeah and and what do you even call that pre-planning of (laughs) yeah I mean it's like yeah end of life planning end of life although a lot of times people assume end of life planning is just like do you have a will and that's and that's the planning that we had done was okay what happens to your things and what happens to your money and those are very important things to have sorted out, but there's so much more beyond that that is just typically forgotten. Like, what uh, are some of the? Can you list off some of the, yeah, the things? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, things that you could you could prepare for is like, what subscriptions does the person have? Uh, what credit cards do they have? Where do they keep their passport, social security card, birth certificate? Yeah, it's like you just like basic things like that. Do they have prescriptions that are refilled regularly? Um, were there any appointments that they had coming up? You know, who are the people that you want to call first? 
what is their digital presence? Do they have an email account that we need to be able to get into? How do we find the addresses and phone numbers of the friends that they want at their at their funeral? What kind of funeral do they want? Do they want to be buried or cremated? Like there's just there's so many questions that we didn't ask her because I think um I think there's a sense of, of guilt. Like you don't want to make the person feel like, oh, well, you're about totally. to go, so let's get your stuff together, you know? Yep. But at the same time, you know, they say like you, you, uh, the way you die is, is, you know, how you left things right beforehand. So it's like, if you don't, uh, if you don't handle this stuff before, it's not going to change after you are now, you don't have anyone to ask these questions to. Um, and so it's so important to ask these questions up front and, and we didn't. And so, I mean, even a year later, I was getting called by a debt collector for a unpaid Verizon bill that I didn't know exist. I didn't know she had a Verizon account. And all of a sudden there was all this money that we owed because we didn't know the Verizon account existed. Um, and it's very easy to make even those seemingly small mistakes or misses during a chaotic time that can cost you a lot of money. Yeah, it really adds up. Yeah, it does. There was also some surprising stuff for me with sort of working out family member issues mm -hmm. over what happens to the stuff. Yeah. That also just complicated everything so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're not super clear on who you want things to go to, it causes so much family drama. I mean, I, I'm in the process of writing my will right now, which I think I, I said this to my friends recently and they were like, you're not even 30. Why are you That's writing a will? Exactly right. That's <laughs> exactly when I because so likewise, you know, I'm comfortable-ish with death in that I'm now getting in therapy more like in touch with my emotions and my body when it comes to hard stuff. So I always thought that I was comfortable with it, but actually I think I was like a little more detached mm -hmm. from it. And getting um I recently got really sick about a year and a half ago, and that kind of put, brought me right back into perspective, like, okay, I really need to um, get comfortable with this process again. So I'm doing the same stuff, like the will, asking myself, like, how do I want to be taken care of, I guess, <laughs> when I pass? And when I bring it up to friends, too, they're all, they say the same thing. It's just so uncomfortable to talk about. Like, how do you, how do we make that conversation just a little easier yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can I can speak from from my own experience that I mean, writing a will as a young person is definitely strange. Like you've been like breaking down. I have nothing of value in my apartment. And I'm like, well, I guess my clothes will go to this friend. And <laughs> the stuff that's hanging on my wall. I don't know. These six people can pick what they want. Like it's like such silly stuff. But it is it's a good practice in thinking about like, you know, how how can you make this as easy as possible for the people you love? And and that's the thing I remind everyone is it might feel silly right now to be figuring these things out, but when you are gone, someone you love and care about is going to be managing this process. And if you can make it easier for them, it's, I mean, that's the greatest gift you could leave someone afterwards instead of having them not only grieving, but also scrambling to figure out how to handle everything. And, you know, you don't, obviously we don't want to die in our, our 30s or 40s or 50s or whatever, but it's inevitable at some point and writing a will doesn't make it happen faster. So, so I actually, I'm so glad you brought that up. I actually looked up um, last night, I was curious. And, and like I said, in a weird way, I feel really comfortable with death. My identical twin sister passed. I, I didn't grow up with my biological parents, but the parents I did grow up, they both passed before I was 18. So I came out into the world as on my own. And so when friends have people that are passing now in my mid-30s, 
I'm just so used to it that I forget the empathy part and the compassion part that this is not something that has been a part of the world. But before this interview, I was just thinking, oh, yeah, like I haven't actually had to revisit this myself. So I Googled what to do when someone dies. And I was kind of like um, so, so shocked. Um, So I got a few books. The top ones in the queue, what does what to do when someone dies? And it had a the cover had clouds on it. And but so I was like, this is so this feels so um, detached. But my favorite was I'm dead. Now what? (laughs) When I have a one when I'm gone planner. (laughs) Also, AARP was one of the very first publications. And they are specifically for people who have retired that magazine. And my favorite, though, was what to do when someone dies a book for dummies. I think I needed that book when I first, when my grandmother first died. I'm not. Did I tell you? I'm not kidding. When they asked me what do you want to do at her apartment, I googled what do you do when someone dies because I had no idea. So did those books? Not a clue. <laughs> That's not why you clue. have that book. Yeah. Oh yeah. I yeah. So I bought the, the book after. The queue. I like, oh, yeah. I I googled that and you know it's such like a mishmash. Like I you know so much of what Lantern's goal is is to limit the scavenger hunt that happens of trying to piece everything together. Try to and Lantern. Some of can that. you explain like what is Lantern? Yeah. So Lantern in. In, in its future vision is a single point solution. So a single place where people can go, whether they're end of life planning or they've just lost someone to navigate the logistical, legal, financial, emotional mayhem that comes with, with losing someone you care about. And as I said, you know, it was a recognition after my grandmother died that you go on a wild chase trying to find resources, services, places to call, I kept thinking, I was like, the last thing I want to do is talk on the phone with 20 different funeral homes right now. Like, why is this not digital? Like, why am I picking up the phone and asking people questions? I don't even know the questions to Like, my first phone call to the first funeral home, I didn't know how to start the conversation. I mean, how so, did you start the conversation? Yeah, I, I, I'm not kidding you. I picked, she picked, they picked up the phone and I was like, um, somebody died and I need help. Like, <laughs> I was like, I don't like, how do you start that conversation? And there's no like script or series of questions to ask. And, um, and so afterwards it was just, it was laying really heavy on my mind that we have these single point solutions for every life event, whether you're having a baby or getting married or going to college or picking your credit card. And then with death, which happens to everybody, there's nothing. It's it's so fragmented. It's so confusing. It's mostly offline. The assumption is really that you only have a funeral home as a choice. It's super expensive to use one. And they don't handle the end to end. It's really just during that immediate need period. Um, and there's kind of this forgotten, like, long tail of all of the other logistical things that come after a funeral. And I I seriously went to my best friend who was a previous coworker. I went to her apartment, and I was like, we got to do something about death. <laughs> like, we got to figure this out because this is not working. I and- love that. <laughs> Co- coffee conversation, opening line, yep. we got to do something about death. Yep. Yeah, and she's uh, she is like my my partner in crime, and the person who we text each other at two a.m. with ideas. We've bought more domain names than I wish to share, <laughs> and, and when this came up, it it struck both of us. It's just like this is a real deep and serious need, and one that we have the ability to fix. So, I took a look at your website, and it feels like a lifestyle blog. <laughs> yeah, we actually saw. It's, we it's just, nice. We just coined that we're a death style company. <laughs> it's, 
um, yeah, it's that was the point. I mean, the the site is for the living. You know, it is for. I love the- that so much. The site is wow. I mean, because that is. Isn't that interesting how how death like puts that into perspective? Mm-hmm. I yeah. always heard that moniker like you know you live more when you know you're dying or something yeah. to that effect. But I never got it until I got sick, and then I was like, oh wow, like that's hard to keep in mind on the day to day. But you seem to have such a great perspective on it when you said earlier that it's or the brevity of life. You really like understand that. Mm-hmm. How how does that affect you? Like just on the day-to-day? Yeah. It's such a great question because on any given day, I'm like, part of me is like, wow, I feel like a superhuman because I'm like so, I feel so like prepared to take on the world. And then other days I'm like, this is kind of crippling being so hyper aware of, of the fragility of life. Um, because it definitely, like I have an irrational fear of flying. I know it's irrational, but every time I'm on a plane, I am suddenly thinking like, wow, I have so little control in this situation. Like anything can happen and there's nothing I can do about it. And then you start to realize like, oh, it does, it does affect you in like unexpected ways. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I used to work um, more in human rights, I've actually just kind of pivoted over to mental health because human rights started to kind of skew my experience of, of the world. Mm-hmm. And of how I interacted with people. And again, I think your wisdom on really maintaining empathy is so valuable. Have you read When Breath Becomes Air? Oh, my gosh. It's my favorite book. (laughs) I know. It is on the top of the list of my favorite book. Yeah. We have – I mean, we're a team of three right now, so it sounds really silly. But, like, we have a requirement when you start working for us that you have to read that book. And Um, When Breath Becomes Air is written by this – he was becoming a neurosurgeon, I believe, and he was 36 when he passed. He had just finished his fellowship, and he had lung cancer – Right. Yeah. yeah. And the whole book, I mean, I think what's so fascinating is that he he was so heavily exposed to death, but didn't he, he his perspective was so fascinating because it went from the sort of academic understanding of death to like the real human understanding of what dying felt like. And I, lo- I mean, one of my favorite quotes, if you look at like the lantern Instagram, I'm always like quoting that book, but he said, he was like, I always knew I was going to die. But then when I became sick, I just became more acutely aware of it. And you, it's exactly what you said too. It's like, you just, you know, I'm, I mean, I guess we're all dying in a sense, but like I, I am very acutely aware of it. And it definitely, it surfaces in, in both positive and also challenging ways. How do you think you have evolved sort of as a person given that you work in this space. I mean, you could have easily have gone into fashion and not death style. Well, how did you call it? Death style? (laughs) Instead of lifestyle, yeah. Yeah, death style, style, yeah. (laughs) I mean, you could have easily done something that was just a little lighter. And I'm just wondering, you know, you have changed so much since that, like, inciting incident of when you were a kid. And then again, I kind of in your um, mid-20s, having to be the one that takes up the process for your grandmother in your family. I just think that must change you so much in comparison to, like, just friends of ours who are who are working in fashion or finance. Yeah, I actually thought I was going to go into fashion initially when I was in undergrad. And, you know, my grandmother was a fashion designer, and I really, like, respected the business she built but I did my first internship and I walked into the office and ever, no one was speaking to each other. And I was like, what, what is going on? And one of the people turned to me and she said, they dyed this fabric the wrong blue. And 
I like almost started oh laughing. Oh, no. And then I left that internship and I was like, nope, this is not for me. Like I cannot take that that seriously. And like and I have so much profound respect for for the craft and the art of it and um and the beautiful things that have come out of that business that I worked with and and the things my grandmother did, but it did not feel like a calling to me. It felt like something that I really appreciated and respected, but I needed something that like got me out of bed in the morning and was like, I will fight for this. <laughs> I think there's something so beautiful when we're able, like I said earlier, to make that cultivate a meaning out of, you know, it was something like really, really difficult and hard. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I found too that people who have experienced these kind of losses and trauma that does run really deep in them to want to make meaningful impact. And I, I know like Malcolm Gladwell explored that a little bit in David and Goliath, which is also an amazing book. I don't, apparently it's the book club now. <laughs> but it's also a great book. But exploring how people that, that may have been like pushed down or silenced due to life circumstance oftentimes rise far above. I think it gives you a little bit of, of grit and drive to kind of prove everyone wrong. Yeah. I would say so. I would say so. For me, it was definitely, definitely the impetus. I think for me, it was like, I, I need to make the most of this because it could, it could go so wrong. You know, my work around I'll go first and the hope I have for the organization and what resources we provide is really comes from my experience of being like, man, it doesn't have to be this way. There's so much more life um, ahead of us. If, if we are able to have the right tools in place to really fulfill our calling, but also find the healing that is kind of the necessary part, necessary part to purpose is mm. evolving as a person day to day. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say to someone who is kind of apprehensive about this process of end of life planning? You had mentioned it a little bit earlier that it's just sort of a part of what living is, but I'm having conversations with friends myself and it is very uncomfortable to get in the water with them. So I'm wondering like, how, how do we have these conversations? <laughs> it, it's, it's definitely challenging. I think especially because of the culture that we live in where talking about death is still, it's almost like if you say it, it'll happen kind of thing. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I find that super fascinating because of course, like we know in, in our realistic minds that that's not the case, but um, it feels closer or like, you know, more, more feasible if you start to talk about it. You know, a couple of things that I, I tend to do when I bring it up with friends is is to remind them of, of a loved one that could need it. So like, especially friends who have kids, I usually say, you know, like, wouldn't you want your your daughter or son to to know what needs to be done or to be secure in their future? Or, you know, it, it definitely is like dependent on, on life circumstance and where that person is. It's, it's just, it's a hard conversation. And one, I mean, I think also like sharing a personal story, like I, I often will share my experience and my experience with my grandmother and my experience with my dad as, as sort of the reason why I do it. Because I think everyone has sort of a personal driver that that's why they decide to do this kind of planning and to, to really get in touch with these kind of things. But it's very much a personal decision. And on that point, like, how do I even get started? How do we even get started with that? thing i mean so it's like the will right it's the living mm -hmm. testimony power yeah. of attorney <laughs> health proxy mm -hmm. and then what to do i guess with your body i don't even know the right language 
Yeah, yeah. So we're we're gonna start rolling out a pre-planning tool actually that's gonna make this super easy. Right now it is a little bit of a patchwork process, um, especially if you don't have you're not in a financial position to have lawyers, it becomes very complicated. There are a lot of free online tools. There's a site called Free Will, um, which you can do uh, your will online. You know, I think the the area that's often forgotten is okay. Now you need to share like what what your wishes are for how your funeral is going to be. Or um, as I said, like your digital footprint is huge, especially for younger people. Um, I know there are some friends that, you know, they'll tell one buddy like, hey, like pull down my Tinder profile if something happens to me. But like these are things you need to think about. Like it exists forever if you don't pull it down. Yeah, it exists forever. And, you know, and even on like Facebook, for example, you can actually assign someone to take over your Facebook if you die. So, um, but if you don't do that beforehand, then your, your page might be stuck for the long term. They have to have a death certificate in order to take it down. And it, and it becomes really challenging. Like, you know, you have, I don't know if this has happened to you before. It's happened to me with a friend who passed away last year where I get reminders of her all the time because Facebook yeah. doesn't know yeah. she's dead. And so it'll be things like, you know, on LinkedIn, wish her a happy two-year anniversary at X job or uh, it's her birthday or you guys have been friends on Facebook for 14 years or, you know, whatever it, it might be. Um, and it's very strange seeing her in sort of like this – living in this digital space yeah I'm kind of thinking of a friend who just passed as well and I'm thinking how speechless I am because that is so true it feels so unsettling when I see um, his feed pop up it's so strange to me so really quick before we wrap up I want to know kind of just as as a personal like friend to friend how what is healing looked like for you yeah, completely nonlinear. <laughs> um, I think that's true for pretty much everyone. Um, I think healing for me, I get I get my energy from good conversation and friendship. Number one and number two, definitely like helping people and and spending my time in a useful way. But I mean, I can say like my my close friends, my boyfriend, my family they have been the biggest part of of that healing process and and not in like a crutch way but more in just a a reminder of how much good there is and how much how much we can learn and evolve together and from each other and then from just like the meaningful work side you know just finding things that you wake up in the morning and you're like psyched to you're psyched to send that email or make that phone call or you know schedule that calendar thing because you're like this is getting me one step closer to this goal that's going to help so many people and that's incredibly healing. When I listen to you talk, the word that comes to my mind is just like, it's just like a neon sign above you that says bravery. I just think you're so brave in like all these aspects of your life. It's just, it's incredible. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I can say the exact same thing about you. How can we support you? Where can we find Lantern? Where can we find you if we have questions or want to get resources? Yeah, so the site is lantern.co, not .com, .co. Um, if you go to lantern.com, you see a bunch of ads for actual lights. Um, so lantern.co. And uh, I mean, you can actually reach us directly. There's a little chat on the bottom right corner, and I literally have it on my phone. So it is it is me in real time. So you can send me a message. Um, and then we're also on Instagram. It's follow lantern on all social media, like literally 
follow Lantern. <laughs> and um, and we're, we're really active on social media, which is, I think, surprising to a lot of people because there's really nothing in this space that's very active on social. But I mean, we, as I said, we see ourselves as a, a death lifestyle brand. So we're really looking to connect with people deeply on this topic that we can all relate to. Well, thank you for doing this really valuable and incredible work. I'm so glad that we had you on the podcast today. It means so much to have this conversation because it is a conversation we need to be having more with more bravery. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.I'll We'll see you next time.